FM. Russ White is uh, has an MSU Today segment for us, but right now we're joined in the studio with uh, Molly Benningfield and Ashley Simons. They're here to talk about the big green print issue, which is coming out. When is it coming out? Um, tomorrow night. All right. Well, thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. So tell me, what is The Big Green? The Big Green is an online magazine. It's available at www.thebiggreen.net. And um, it was started in 2003 by a journalism student named Beth Daisy. Um, and it was through allmissu.com. But then we split off a year later and just been growing since then. So um, it comes out on the first of each month, although the May issue will be our last of the year. So. Right. So when do you start up again with the printed issues? Um, well, the print issue is just a special edition. Um, okay. It's our first time ever doing it, and um, it's a year-in-review type thing, a best of. So I don't know if we'll do it again. We'll see. Oh, okay. We hope to. <laughs> so you're still going to be online during Yep, this. definitely. Um, so you have a launch party tomorrow night. Yeah. Um, it's tomorrow night, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. It's at Green River Cafe, which is on MAC Avenue, um, just pretty close to the Union, actually. And um, we're just going to be passing out our issues, and there's going to be live music, and it'll be really fun. Who's, uh, who's playing? Um, we've got half of La Remedia, which um, Zach, Heidi, and Ryan will be performing. Um, the other people can't come. so But we'll have it. They'll, they play banjos. Uh, Oboe, drums, guitar, just a lot of random instruments, so it'll be a nice night. So why did you decide to go to a print issue? Why not just stay online? Well, since we're only online, we wanted something to hand people, and then if they like what they see, they can go to the website. So with the print issue, we're really trying to promote the website, but it was a good opportunity for us and fun to put together and lay it out since we've never done that before. So who writes for the Big Green? Are they all MSU students? Yes. Um, we've got a staff of about 25, and mostly journalism students, some English students. And you guys have a poetry contest. Is it every year, every semester? How does that work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we started it last year. Um, it's in the arts and culture section of the Big Green, and uh, it's just we send out um, on listservs and stuff whoever wants to send in some poetry. So... Um, this is our second year doing it, and we've featured it inside of our uh, print issue. I think we have five poems in there, four or five? Four or five, yeah. So you, the other section that I, I notice in every edition of The Big Green is the uh, the best you've never heard. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Um, that's also in the arts and culture section. Um, it's a really cool thing that we have. Uh, it's really nice to be able to have some sort of article that's always there, even if it's Obviously, it's different every month because um, we feature different bands. But it's something that um, we can showcase different local music, um, just get a like inside scoop on who's playing around the area. So um, in our print issue, we actually have Great Lakes Myth Society, which is a really good band from Michigan. So, so who MSU students write for it. Mm -hmm. Who takes the uh, the pictures and all that? Is it all completely designed and all the pictures all come from MSU students? Everything is student-run, yeah. I mean, from the very beginning with the ideas to final putting it on the website, um, this whole print issue, everything was done by students. How long does it take you for, I mean, how much time do you spend getting one issue together? For the uh, online issues... I mean, we spend the whole month preparing, starting with brainstorming ideas, and then the last two weeks before the issue comes out are the most intense where we're doing a lot of editing and designing. So 
it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. So if someone wants to write for The Big Green, how do they get in contact with you? Um, well, at this point, since we're wrapping up for the year, um, if they're still around next year, in August, we'll be doing another push for new writers. So um, if they're on the journalism listserv, they'll definitely get an email. Or um, we'll have a table at Party at the Odd where they can come sign up. You can also go online, too. On our website, we have a little button that said what says like want to write for us or something mm -hmm. so and it sends us emails so then we find out who is interested so that's uh, www.thebiggreen.net mm -hmm. yep do you have to be a journalism student to write for you nope you can be i mean technically you could be any student and any type of writing experience yeah we just like you to have some writing clips to send in but um we realize that there's good writers in other majors too so so more about the photography of it. Who takes the pictures on staff? How do you decide, you know, do you, do you send out certain people or is there... Um, we have a small photography staff. That's something we're still trying to build. But um, we have a photo editor and she takes a lot of the pictures, um, Jessica Yetta. And then, but a lot of the staff writers take their own pictures. If they have a camera, um, we encourage them to get their own. So tell me about the, the print issue. What stories do you have for the year in review? Well, there's, um, there's about two from each of our four sections. Um, the sections are stateside, global view, arts and culture, and sex and health. Um, so, for example, we've got one about student activism, and we've got one about uh, the refugee center in Lansing. There's, like Molly said, there's the best you've never heard. And there's one about um, called Sexology 101 that's really fun. Um, it's about a sexologist, so... How There's lots to choose from. How did you decide what to put in this in this edition? Um, well, yeah, that was a hard decision, but mostly we just went for what is still relevant now that wasn't time sensitive, so and they're some of our best articles from the year. So what did the two of you do on staff? I'm editor in chief, so I do a lot. Um I don't know, I'm behind the scenes a lot. Um, but also leading the meetings, doing editing, organizing everything, so um, the print issue is my baby. <laughs> um, and I'm managing editor, so I, um, both Caitlin Dobson and I are the managing editors, and we kind of um, lead off two sections each, and we get in touch with a lot of the writers and the section editors, and then um, I guess we're just kind of one step away from Ashley then. So if you have any questions for Ashley and Molly about the Big Green, you can call us up at 517-432-3893. And just any questions you have, you can call us up. Um, so how do you, are there any reports that you get that just aren't incredibly great? I mean, how do you deal with that? You mean if we get articles that are yeah, bad? right. Um, then they don't go in. <laughs> We've Luckily, um, we're four years old now, so each year we just get better and better, and we're raising the bar, and, you know, we won't print anything that we feel doesn't live up to big green standards. But, I mean, we always really encourage the writers to, do their best work, and we since we have a month to work on the articles, we really help them um, throughout the editing process to make the stories better. Do you have any favorite pieces from the last year? Um, mm -hmm. A lot of them are in the print issue. I really like, actually Molly has a story in it um, called Funny in Any Faith, and that was a really good one. What's that about? Um, I actually interviewed a couple um, different I interviewed a Muslim comedian and um, someone who does like Muslim studies on campus, and it's actually just about um, being 
funny, you know, across the board, there was a um, TV show on the Canadian channel um, called Little Mosque on the Prairie, and that's where I first started um, figuring out that I wanted to write about, um, you can, I guess, be funny in any face. <laughs> Molly, what about you? Do you have any favorite segments from the last year? Um, I really do like The Best You've Never Heard. I think that's one of my favorites, and I think um, I might be a little partial because I was the arts and culture editor last year, so I um, tend to gravitate a little bit towards that. But I I think we had a nice... Um, I was glad that we finally got a bit of environmentalism going on. We did a global warming piece a couple months ago, um, and that was a really good one. And it was a hard issue to tackle because it's such a big issue. Right. So. Yeah, I was I was happy that we could do that. Once again, it's www.thebiggreen.net where you can look up you can look up older um, editions of the Big Green. Right? Yeah, all the archived issues are there t as well. So how did you how did the both of you get started with the Big Green? It started in two thousand three. Yeah, uh, and I joined my freshman year, um, and I've been with it ever since. So I just got a email or something that they were looking for writers and I started as a writer and then moved up in different editing positions. Molly? Yeah, um, I think I started in, it, it was my sophomore year, so 2004, 2005, I can't remember. Um, it just seems so long ago. But I just, yeah, I went to a meeting and um, at first I was like, oh my gosh, everyone's a journalism major because I'm actually English. Um, and so I was going to do copy editing, and then I stayed for the meeting and was like, no, I really want to write. So that's how I started. I didn't even know that. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> so you both started as writers, and now you're both editors. Well, you're the editor-in-chief, mm -hmm. which is more important, Molly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have to answer to her. <laughs> and your first printed issue, printed issue is uh, available right now. You're going to have... Uh, tell me about the launch issue, launch party again. Yeah, we're going to have copies available at Green River Cafe um, tomorrow night from 7 to 9. Um, you can just, if you can, you can come by and pick up a copy, say hello to us. Um, as Molly said, there'll be a band, just relayed back, hopefully fun. No, it will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, that's uh, you can check out the online edition at www.thebiggreen.net. Molly and Ashley, thanks for being on the show. Thank, Thank you. you very much. We'll be right back with more Friday Night Insight. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on The Impact. Only on Impact Prime Time. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. 
This is MSU Today on Impact Radio and Spartan Podcast. I'm Russ White back at the College of Education on the MSU campus visiting with Randy Stanulis. Randy is an associate professor and associate chair of the Department of Teacher Education. Her teaching and research interests focus on teacher learning from the perspective of novices learning to teach and from experienced teachers learning about their own practice while mentoring others. As director of master's programs and teacher induction, she's particularly interested in development of teacher induction programs supported by university school partnerships in urban settings. So, Randy, it's good to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Let's start out with what is new teacher induction? Teacher induction is a formal way of saying that beginning teachers have serious learning needs that can't be accomplished just through university teacher preparation alone. Once a teacher enters the profession, they need to have a formal set of experiences that support their learning, and this helps retain them as teachers and help them grow as high-quality teachers. So we're trying to get an awareness of that of a whole set of experiences called teacher induction that happens as a person becomes socialized in the profession. Before we talk a little bit more about specifics of induction, then why is it even needed or necessary? Well, unfortunately, even though we have wonderful people who enter the teaching profession, up to 50% of our teachers leave the profession within five years. And those those statistics are most uh, overwhelming in urban areas. And uh, it's usually the high-achieving students who leave the profession, and they leave because they feel like they haven't been supported, that they don't have a voice, and that they haven't been able to continue to learn, that they're just completely put in survival mode and having to go through each day without feeling like they can learn from what they're doing. And that's another reason why we really need to have a program that says, hey, these people are continuing to learn, and they need to have the space to learn, and they need to have the resources to learn, because we need them to stay. Uh, some studies that Richard Ingersoll out of uh, University of Pennsylvania have uh, of have investigated have found that it takes up to six years for a novice teacher to have the same student achievement gains as an experienced teacher and so if you're not supported to stay in the profession that long we constantly have this what they call the revolving door we constantly have new teachers who have little experience teaching our children and then we wonder why student achievement isn't raised especially in urban areas so tell us more than about new teacher induction what it is and, and why it's important to teachers and the school districts it's important for raising the level of quality of the teachers uh, in terms of deepening their content knowledge and their just general skills like classroom management, planning for instruction, learning to assess student learning. If they're not given the time to talk to people who have more experience and who who are trained to help them learn from their practice, then they're just, I think, I always call it spinning. I've watched it. I mean, I've, for the last 14 years, I've been following beginning teachers as they enter their first years of teaching. And when they don't, when they're just doing, instead of trying to think about why something is the way it is, um, if they're not studying the way that they question their students, the way that they're talking or trying to lead discussions, the way that they're using assessment of student learning to guide their next instruction, those things don't just typically happen. Even though they have been taught, they've been introduced to those ideas. That's what I think. And teacher preparation is just like any other professional experience when you're introduced to ideas as part of your university preparation. But like in you know medical school or law school, you have an apprenticeship where you're continuing to learn. And um, I, don't, I don't remember who said this, but I know that someone has said that there's no other profession like teaching where you're a student in May and then you're expected to be an expert in August. 
And um, as a parent myself, I know, you know, if, if someone's going to be responsible for my child's learning, I want them to be the best prepared that they can. And I definitely, when I'm looking for a teacher for my children, I'm always looking for someone who's learning about their practice, who's always studying and trying to grow and learn from what their kids know. And I think that's a set of skills we introduce in teacher preparation, but we have a responsibility as a university to um, insist that induction programs happen so it can continue during their first years of teaching. So how did the MSU induction program come about? Well, we were very fortunate to be selected by the Carnegie Corporation of New York as the first four institutions in the country to be part of the Teachers for a New Era initiative, where uh, the Carnegie Corporation visited uh, institutions across the country and selected four institutions that they said were exemplary in their teacher preparation, and that uh, over the next, uh, over the five years, this is our fifth year, uh, these programs would be raised to a level of distinction where they could be national models for the rest of the country. And one of the criteria that Dan Fallon, the um, uh, director of the Carnegie Corporation educational programs, um, mandated was that we all create an induction component of our programs and so I'm leading that effort at the way we've been piloting in the Lansing School District where a couple years ago they did hire over a hundred beginning teachers although unfortunately financial constraints have have made um, they've had to let go quite a few of those teachers. Well tell us more about the unique features of that MSU induction program with the Lansing schools. Well, one of the uh, most significant features of that program is the preparation, selection and preparation of uh, veteran classroom teachers as mentors. As the Michigan State law requires that every new teacher be assigned a mentor, there's nothing in the legislation or, or support for helping people think about what those mentors should do and what they should um, exemplify as teachers. And so it, it becomes just, a, you know, if you're wearing a green shirt, you can have a mentee, or, or if you um, volunteer, you can have a mentee. Um, but what we're saying we're, in our program is that you need to be a certain kind of person to be a mentor. You have to be someone that, just like the kinds of skills I said about beginning teachers, you need to be someone who can analyze data from a beginning teacher's classroom, who's willing to learn about ways to observe and provide someone feedback, and who's willing yourself to grow and learn and not just say I'm a model of practice and here's the way I did it and you do this too that's not what we're looking for so in Lansing we recruited um, we started with five and now we have 11 veteran teachers who um, six hours a month work with MSU faculty to uh, to learn about mentoring as a practice and they do th like today for example this afternoon we're meeting for three hours to look at data look at their conversations with beginning teachers and see how they could help uh, push their conversations farther with beginning teachers to focus more on what the beginning teachers are learning from their students learning. So we think selection and preparation of mentors is critical. We also believe that having sanctioned time to meet with mentors and beginning teachers is absolutely critical and that's something else that's not uh, part of the state legislation and so it's something that mentors just meet with their beginning teachers around the edges of their own full-time teaching and that's almost impossible to say. How can they observe in someone's classroom? How can they really have time to think about someone else's practice when they're teaching full-time? So our mentors are released one day each week, and they actually visit the beginning teacher's classroom every week and meet with them about two hours every week. So how do we know if a new teacher induction program is successful or it's making a difference? Well, that's where I think we have an advantage as a research institution, that we have several research projects going on at the same time while we're developing the program. So we're developing this program of what we think a mentor needs to do, what we hope principals will do to help. And then we're also studying what's happening. So we've had a control group of beginning teachers who were, are not involved in our 
work, and we have an experimental or the treatment group that is involved in with our intensive mentors. And we've observed them. At, we have one person who's observing all of them at the beginning of the school year last year and at the end of the school year last year. And there was a statistical, statistic, statistically significant difference in the beginning teachers' effectiveness that were in our study along the areas that we'd been working on in classroom management and planning and um, assessing student learning. So we have beginnings of empirical data that show that having a mentor who works with you around your practice uh, that really does make a difference in your teaching. We're also continuing to collect data about what do mentors talk about so we can help the mentors think about how they can push conversations forward. And we have a study of a, a longitudinal study of two years of a mentor with her three beginning teachers and how, she, how, they, how she's helped them develop their literacy practices at the elementary level. So I think research is the key. Randy, is there anything important I haven't asked you that you'd like to add about new teacher induction? My, my main point would be, well, there are a couple. One is that universities have to play a role in the continued learning of teachers. You know, I've been in this 14 years, and it used to be that I, te I teach language arts methods, and so I would say, this was a great class. I'm sure you learned a lot, and goodbye. And we can't, we can't afford to say that anymore. It has to be just the beginning of learning to teach. And the second is that, uh, that I hope that further legislation and that districts will realize that investing a little money in preparation and in release of mentors and beginning teachers so they can work together helps them save money, not lose money. Because there's some statistics that show that the um, Department of Labor has shown that the cost of recruiting, hiring, and training a new teacher is approximately 30% of the exiting teacher's salary, a cost that is not recoverable, and that the American schools spend $2.6 billion annually to replace beginning teachers who leave the profession. So we, it's saving money, it's raising teacher quality, and it's helping the best and brightest teachers stay in the profession. Randy, thanks for sharing your time and insights. Thank you very much. That's Randy Stanulis of the Michigan State University College of Education, where she is an associate professor and associate chair of the Department of Teacher Education. And this is MSU Today on Impact Radio and Spartan Podcast. I'm Russ White. For more on what Randy does, the website is www.educ.msu.edu. And for more on MSU Today, it's msutoday.com. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. All the gamers look at you as a gang member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student, is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, The Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. 
This is MSU Today on Impact Radio and Spartan Podcast. I'm Russ White. Barbara Schneider is an education sociologist at Michigan State University who holds the position of John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor of Education in MSU's College of Education, the highest chair. She studies family relationships and how they influence educational attainment. She's written books about adolescence, two-career families, achievement strategies, work-life balance, and how all of that informs learning. This is social science research that dovetails into education. She has testified before Congress, appeared on CNN, and is an expert in this area of research. Essentially, Dr. Schneider looks at home and family influence on our ability to learn. So, Dr. Schneider, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Let's start by having you maybe tell us what led you to uh, sociology and research in this area of education. I think the largest influence certainly on my academic interests was um, James Coleman. Um, he was a professor at the University of Chicago. Um, I, When I was doing my graduate work, I came upon lots of um, articles and books that he had written and thought, wow, you can do all these kinds of things and make these statements by analyzing data. Then I had an opportunity to work with him at the University of Chicago, and he fundamentally changed my life. Well, what, what role does a person's family have on his or her ability to learn? Well, the family is the most important place. Um, it is the most significant uh, social system. It is the one area that you can't take away. Your family is your first unit where you are socialized into this world, where you start to learn the very beginnings of how you're going to interact with other people. There isn't anything quite as important as the family. Makes sense to me. Well, talk about work life and, and balance and how that influences children and their schooling. Well, right now um, we have a large number of families that are dual career families, and they also have children. Um, as we're all very much aware, there are a lot of stresses in the workplace. There are a lot of stresses at home, trying to get everybody ready to get to school, do well in school, so that most American families where you have two parents working, there's a great deal of um, concern about not letting you know work dominate, making sure that you have good quality time available for your children. And there's this question about what is quality time, but people are increasingly looking at that as not an issue of how much time you spend, but the kinds of activities that you engage with one another. Um, and that you really are involved as a family doing things together. Given all the pressures that we see in our modern society, it's not surprising that people are really trying very hard to think about ways that they can increase family functioning so that young people and their parents are interacting in a positive way. Dr. Schneider, you write about the role adolescence plays on learning as well. What do we know about this time in a student's life? Well, adolescence is a wonderful time in young people's lives because they're coming into their own. It's a time when they're excited about their worlds, they're thinking about their futures, um, they're looking toward what's after high school. And from my perspective, um, this is a, an exciting time for a researcher to 
examine young people because you start to begin to see how people strategize about their life choices because you can actually see how people are starting to do that when they're in high school. It also is a chance to learn about how young people perceive our worlds because they're not going to perceive it the same way that adults perceive it and it's really important to get a sense about where they're coming from and different kinds of things. The transition into college or the workplace is another very difficult transition just as the transition that moms and dads make from home into the workplace can be stressful so is this transition from high school living at home with your parents into when becoming an adult and moving out either into the workplace um, or going off to college, which isn't to say that young people, of course, don't have relationships with their parents and don't come back home to their homes, and most people today are not living on their own when they're 18 years old. But nonetheless, it's that first time of real independence, of choices, of being on your own and having to be um, in a place where your actions and the kinds of things you do, you're responsible for them. So the onus of responsibility and obligation changes and young people then have a lot more agency and they're much more accountable for the actions that they undertake. The time in college right now is um, a very difficult time for young people. Um, it is difficult because of um, the kinds of choices that they have to make how they have to think about their lives after college, what kind of work they think they might want to do, if they're going to need additional training besides you know, receiving their baccalaureate degrees. So again, you start to see these kinds of choices that young people have and as they redirect themselves towards their future. You led a news conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. earlier this year about your scale-up volumes. Can you explain the scale-up concept and how this influences academic achievement? Yes. Um, today, uh, there are a number of studies that are going on around the country. These studies have a design which we call random assignment, which is basically where you give one um, group of classrooms or schools a treatment, and then another group of classrooms or schools doesn't receive the treatment. Um, I want to be real clear about this. No one's being withheld treatment. There's a lot of uh, misperception about that. Um, it's not the question that they're being withheld anything. In fact, they're getting the same kinds of programs that they always would have gotten. It's just in the treatment group, either they're getting a little something special or something that they might have gotten in a way before has been altered. And then the idea is to see if any of these instructional techniques or um, grouping practices or time spent in the classroom in, in essence has any effect on achievement. So the National uh, Science Foundation, the Institute for Education Sciences, and the National Institute for um, Child Health and Development, NICHD, um, they came together and formed um, what's called um, the IERI program. This was an interagency program to fund large-scale studies that would in fact use random assignment to look and try and see um, what kind of effects different instructional practices might have on increasing um, young people's learning in uh, primarily math and science but reading as it relates to math and science. Uh, there was also a big component on professional development and technology. 
So when you do one of these kinds of studies, the first thing you have to do is you have to have some sort of proof of concept. And you go out and you start it with pilots and you test your intervention to make sure that it works and who it, what kinds of populations it works with. And then you, what you want to do, of course, is you want to see if this is going to happen, if you're going to get these same kinds of effects with different populations in different settings. So the idea of scale up is to take these promising interventions and use them with different populations, larger populations, and in different settings. And this, that's essentially what this IERI program was intended to do. And the IERI program, in fact, did that. And there is a brochure, which we call Just the Facts, that basically shows how these very promising interventions when taken to scale actually improve children's learning and achievements, specifically in areas of science, mathematics, and reading. Um, the scale-up volumes, basically, there are two of them. The first one is called scale-up in principle. Now, the reason um, we call it scale-up in principle is that we explain this concept of random assignment and how people take these promising interventions to scale. And so it looks at a variety of disciplines and how they conceptualize and think about this concept of scale-up, because it isn't always the same. I mean, what an engineer does is very different than what a social scientist might do in terms of taking a promising intervention to scale. But then again, there are some universalistic kinds of ideas and methods that, you know, at least with respect to the scientific method that we pretty much all follow. Um, so that's the first volume. The second volume deals specifically with these promising interventions, and it highlights specific programs that, in fact, are having a positive impact on children's achievement. Um, people have been very excited about these volumes because there's always this question about people who do educational research, well, does it matter? And we can say, yes, it matters, and there are really good things that are happen happening to young people as a consequence of the kinds of work that people are doing with respect to these promising interventions. Dr. Barbara Schneider, you are a Fulbright New Century Scholar as well. What does that entail, and what will you be doing as a part of this research? Well, I'm very excited about this program. This is a um, newer program in the Fulbright series. It's for senior scholars. And um, in the typical kind of senior scholar program, someone would go one place for a year. In this program, you can go up to three months, and you can vary the time that you're in your particular place. Um, the idea is to look at issues of transition, transi transition from high school into tertiary education. Um, when you talk about post-secondary education globally, um, the term is usually tertiary. In the, U in the U.S., we usually use the term post-secondary. And people from, um, there are um, 26 scholars from other countries and 10 scholars within the United States. The 10 scholars in the United States will be going to countries um, abroad, and the 26 scholars from other countries will be coming to the United States. And we're all interested, every single one of us, in some aspect of looking at the transition into higher education. Um, the group is extraordinarily diverse. Um, my own project, I will be going into um, Southeast Asia. I'm looking. I'm going to be at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. I'm also going to be in Seoul, Korea, and hopefully in Taiwan. 
and Tokyo as well. Um, what I'm primarily interested in is kind of using the methods and the instruments that I have been working with here in the States to study the transition that adolescents make into post-secondary and try and seeing if people would be interested in using these with different populations in other places. The idea behind my particular work is to try and enhance capacity so that more people are doing this work and the kind of work that we do can be standardized in some way so that we can be able to make better comparative analyses of how people make the transition from one place to another, recognizing, of course, that every country has its own unique situations with respect to transitions. And we can't assume that just because it looks this way in the United States that it's going to look this way in other nation states, because it probably is not. Similarly, it's not going to look the same in the United States across the whole country. There's going to be tremendous variation. So the idea is to try and understand the variation, the variation that exists within the United States, as well as the variation that we're going to see in other nation states but nonetheless, to try and see, given that this is such an important time in young people's lives, if there's ways that we can ease the transition so that people move to a more successful adulthood. Wow, that sounds great. Um, what do you hope your research will do to help students learn and, just as important, have access to higher education? Well, my um, uh, particular interest has always been on young people who have the talent and the interest to go to post-secondary education and don't. There are a lot of reasons why that happens. Some of them are family, financial. Some of them are the informational, that young people just don't know where to go. Some of them is, it is this kind of mismatch between understanding about what kinds of education they need for the kind of job that they want to pursue. So from all of my work has really focused on this particular group and how we can help this particular group um, make a more successful transition out of high school and uh, from my perspective into post-secondary education. If you were to say to me what did I think the most important thing we can do for young people today in high school, it would be to make sure that they are moving into some sort of post-secondary experience. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has to go on and get a baccalaureate degree, but even for most of the jobs that are going to be available, I'm talking about jobs that where you have stable employment, where you're likely to be promoted, and where you can support a family, they're going to require a certain kind of technical expertise, and that expertise is going to either require a certificate or an associate's degree or a baccalaureate degree. And we're doing a tremendous disservice to young people if we, in fact, don't inform them of what the future is likely to be like for um, the jobs that can be available given the kind of education that they are likely to receive. Um, my sense right now is to make that possible for a growing number of young people within the United States. I'm particularly concerned with young people who can't get financial funding to pursue higher education um, because, you know, they may have certain issues within their own families. They may be recent immigrants to the United States. But this sort of immigrant crossing borders phenomenon is occurring throughout the globe, and we have to figure out a better way to help young people get into higher education. If you think about post-secondary education and you think about the problems of our world today, we have to realize that what will make a difference in young people's lives are if they learn about people from other places. The more education you have, and I certainly believe that education is 
the way by which we learn to understand other people, other cultures, and live in a much more harmonious world. If President Bush came to you, Dr. Schneider, and said, you're my education czar now, are there one or two things you would do first or things that you think would be the most important to do for our education system? Well, there are a number of things, of course, that have to be done in our education system. And I know that there are a number of initiatives that are currently underway at the um, early childhood. And I think early childhood education is certainly very important. However, if we only focus on early childhood education, we are missing a whole series of young people that are currently passing through elementary and secondary school today. So I would say we've got to focus more attention on our young people that are in secondary schools today. They need to know more about what kinds of educational requirements um, are needed for the kinds of jobs that are likely to be available in the future. We have to find ways to make it possible for people who don't have funding to be able to access higher education so that we can take advantage of the enormous talent pool of young people that we have across the United States and abroad. The U.S. is very fortunate that it has such a high quality um, collegiate system and Michigan State University is one of those places and um, Michigan State University is unusual in that it has in fact already started to make very strong ties with um, other countries to look at these issues and problems of trying to get young people into um, post-secondary education and build stronger ties across cultures and nation states. Any final thoughts or anything important we've left out as we close? Well, just to say that I am thrilled to be here at Michigan State University. Um, I find that the students are really exceptional. I've, I have wonderful experiences with the students I'm working with in the College of Education. I think the faculty here is dedicated to improving the quality of instruction in um, our K-16 system. And it has been a pleasure for me to be here, and I look forward to continuing to spend my academic career here. Thanks so much for sharing your time and insights. Thank you. That's Dr. Barbara Schneider, who is an education sociologist in the College of Education at Michigan State University. And for a lot more on the web, the address is www.educ.msu. Edu. And I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio and Spartan Podcast. For more on us on the web, it's msutoday.com. You're listening to Friday Night Inside on Impact 89FM. That was Russ White of MSU Today talking to Barbara Schneider of the Department of Education. She's the John A. Hanna Distinguished Professor of Education. Before that, you heard um, you heard Russ White talk to Randy Stenulis. She's the, an associate professor and associate chair of the Department of Teacher Education and the College of Education here at Michigan State University. For more information about those interviews or other MSU Today interviews, you can go to msutoday.msu.edu. Before that, we had Molly Benningfield and Ashley Simons of The Big Green here in the studio. They're talking about their first print edition, which is coming out this week. They're going to be at the Green River Cafe on MAC tomorrow night from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. You can get more information about The Big Green at www.thebiggreen.net. Coming up, Russ White's going to be talking to Trey Rogers. He's a professor of turf grass science here at MSU, and he has a new book out called Long Geek. Stick around for more Friday Night Insight.
This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White, today visiting with Trey Rogers, who's Professor of Crop and Soil Science at Michigan State University and is out with a book called Lawn Geek. And Trey, first of all, welcome to MSU Today. Thank you, Russ. My pleasure to be here. First of all, what is a lawn geek and are you one? Oh, I don't know. I, 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 I know I'm a lawn geek. Um, I'm one of these guys that gets up every morning and does think about what's happening with the grass on a daily basis. Might not necessarily be lawns, but it's certainly golf courses, athletic fields, and spills over into lawns. If you've ever taken a walk with me, and my wife can testify to this, I'm always looking at the lawns and have even wanted to and maybe once or twice walked up to the neighbor and tried to give him a couple of pointers. But, uh, yeah, I totally think I'm a lawn geek. I think that Someone who probably is a lawn geek is someone who really is a perfectionist and have found a place where they can toil and never really get bored. Sometimes I think a lawn geek could be described as a person who's a competitor. Because sometimes I see people compete to have the best lawn. And maybe they were a competitor in sports or something else or in uh, the arts. And uh, now they've the competitiveness has spilled over in their later years to uh, having the best lawn. So it could be either one of those things and could be something else, but definitely there are lawn geeks out there, and I'm one. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. I think part of what you say in the book is that it maybe isn't as hard as some of the other books or experts will have you believe. I mean, what what are some of the maybe misconceptions or basic overall tips that someone should uh, have to have a good lawn? Well, I think, first of all, you're right about that. Uh, I wouldn't say that other people try to make it overcomplicated. Um, I just think I've tried to come up with a way to to make what they were trying to be simple continue to be simple, maybe in a little bit more of a, a straightforward way. Um, and I have to give a lot of credit to the person who helped me write this book, Sonia Castleberry, because she did a nice job of of that of doing exactly that, helping me to get this across. If I had to say what was the best thing to do for your lawn, it, it would have to be it would have to start with the lawnmower. And yes, you're going to spend a lot of time with that lawnmower. And yes, that might be where you spend, you know, several hours uh, during the during the summer. But it is your most important tool because if you won't scalp the grass and if you'll mow on a frequent basis, you will be doing exactly what that lawn needs in order to be dense and healthy and thick. And that's why we call the one-third rule, we we call it a rule, it's probably just a guideline, but at the same time, we want you to not cut more than a third of the leaf blade off during any single mowing. And if you could just adhere to that rule only throughout the summer, it would the results would be amazing. What about watering, Trey Rogers? That's another thing we hear. Should be morning, should be night, should be a little, should be a lot. What are the watering basics? The idea behind watering is that you need to provide the plant what it needs. So when someone says, how much should you water, I ask the question of what time of year is it? What have been the conditions? Is it hot and dry outside? Is it cloudy and humid? Because each one of these will determine how much water the plant needs. Now, when we get into normal summer months, the plant probably uses in Michigan about an inch of water per week. 
but again that would probably not kick on till around June 1st and would kick off again probably around August 20th or something like that give or take a week depends on the depends on the week now if somebody says to me when should we water I always say I like to water early in the morning very simply it's when the winds at its least so your irrigation is going to hit its target it's not going to water the street and also I like to water early in the morning if so when the water does hit the plant and goes into the soil the Sun comes up and dries off the leaf and this is a good tactic because it will no, it will help to suppress diseases because if you watered at night for example it could stay wet all night this could be a harboring for potential for diseases especially during humid summer nights so those are my tips on watering fertilizers another topic I think I learned correctly from one of your colleagues Ron Calhoun that fall is actually the best time people have cabin fever in the winter or something and they get out there and want to blow a lot of fertilizer on the lawn in March, April, May or whatever, but is fall the best and what about some fertilizer tips? If you're only going to if you're only going to fertilize once a year, fall is the best time. However, um, you know, oftentimes people do want to fertilize in the spring and uh, sometimes might not be necessary. Uh, probably the thing that I like to have people do is probably wait as long into May as possible. And, in truth, the matter is, if they fertilized in the fall, they probably could. They can probably wait all the way until uh, the middle of May, even Memorial Day, which is one of the reasons why we love to use what we call the holiday plan, which means fertilize Memorial Day, then again, maybe 4th of July, depending on uh, whether you can kind of assess that, but certainly around Labor Day, and then fertilize again somewhere between Halloween and Thanksgiving. And it's that late fall fertilization that will give you that nice green look, green up in the spring, and allow you to wait all the way into Memorial Day. So Ron Calhoun is very right, as he always is. So let's recap a little bit. Lawn Geek is your book, Trey Rogers. What are, if you had to really come up with the best couple of three tips, or maybe look at it this way, if you wanted someone to take one thing out of your book, what would it be? Well, first of all, I'd tell you to mow correctly. Don't scalp. Follow the one-third rule. You'll be amazed how much this will help you. Second, water early in the day. And the third thing would be is follow the directions on the back of the fertilizer bag. One thing to remember about that, those directions, is those companies aren't going to gain anything from you uh, misapplying or, them, or that fertilizer not working because they know you're not going to come back. They don't make their money off you by you buying one bag of fertilizer. They want you to buy, buy several bags of fertilizer for several years. Now they start to make a profit. So it doesn't do them any good to give you bad information. Plus, always remember, where that information come from? came from places like Michigan State University who went out and did that type of research so, and put it exactly on the same kind of grass that you're using. So trust the bag, follow the directions, and remember, twice as much is never twice as good. Any final thoughts, Trey, or uh, anything important we've left out? Well, I, I think there's lots of information that, that people can get, and you can get that information through a lot of websites. We have a nice website at Michigan State. I've worked with the company Briggs & Stratton to develop a nice website. We call that Yard Doctor, yarddoctor.com. So I'm very comfortable a lot, of our, a lot of our information is correct 
just like I'm comfortable that the, the book is correct, Lawn Geek. So. Trey Rogers, crop and soil science professor at Michigan State with his new book, Lawn Geek. And I do happen to know the site, at least at MSU, for a lot more information is a simple one to remember, turf.msu.edu. And this has been MSU Today on Impact Radio. You can check us out on the web at msutoday.com. And I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Saturday nights from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., tune into the cultural vibe to hear the best in both local and national hip-hop, plus live mixing on the ones and twos. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is Governor Jennifer Granholm. I've been working around the clock to find a solution to Michigan's budget crisis so that we can continue to move forward with our economic plan to revitalize Michigan's economy. And last Sunday, the observance of Earth Day had me thinking about our Michigan environment and how it can be an economic advantage. This weekend, I'm visiting a place where conservation and job creation come together. It's called Next Energy Center in Detroit. Next Energy supports the development and manufacturing of alternative energy technologies, and they recently completed a study of my 21st century energy plan. This plan calls for the use of renewable energy sources and efficiency programs so we can meet our increasing energy needs without increasing our reliance on fossil fuels. When the researchers at Next Energy looked at the economic impact of the energy plan, they found it would create up to 19,000 jobs and increase the state's economic output by as much as $1.6 billion. At the same time, this plan will set Michigan on a course to have 20% of our energy come from renewable sources, things like solar cells and wind-powered turbines, by the year 2025. This means that we'll burn less of the fossil fuels that cause global warming and protect the bank accounts of Michigan families as these dirty fuels are certain to become more regulated and more expensive. Michigan is in the perfect position to lead the nation and the world in researching and developing alternative and renewable energy solutions. We've got 11 ethanol and biodiesel plants coming online across our state. Our 21st Century Jobs Fund awarded nearly $9 million last year to alternative energy projects that will create over 750 Michigan jobs. And we'll have a thousand biofuel pumps in our state by the end of 2008 so that our consumers can count on highly efficient E85 ethanol blend gasoline. 
These initiatives are creating jobs and making Michigan a leader in alternative energy. And the technologies we're investing in and that are growing our economy will allow Michigan citizens and our visitors to continue to enjoy our state's natural beauty and plentiful natural resources, including air that is clean, water that is pure, and natural ecosystems that are protected from pollution and conserved for future generations. That's part of what makes Michigan such a magical place to live. And when we resolve this budget crisis and continue to invest in our people and in our economic future, we can ensure that Michigan's high quality of life continues for us and our kids, driven by cutting edge industries like alternative energy. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Friday Night Insight on Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Mike Hogan. Tonight on the show, we had Russ White talk to Trey Rogers of the Department of Turfgrass Science. He told, told us about his new book, Long Geek. Before that, we heard from Randy Stanulis and Barbara Schneider from the uh, College of Education telling us about new teaching options for MSU students. Before that, we heard from Molly Benningfield and Ashley Simons from The Big Green. They're telling us about their new print issue, which you can get at the Green River Cafe tomorrow night between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m. They're going to be handing out copies there. That's the Green River Cafe on MAC. Um, if you have any more, if you want more information about the Big Green, you can go to www.thebiggreen.net or about MSU Today. You can actually go to msutoday.msu.edu. Coming up for the summer, I'm going to be here for the summer. If you have any topics that you would like to talk about on the show, you can send me an email at mike at impact89fm. Org, but right now um, we're going to send it over to Robin with the flashback. You're listening to Friday Night Insight on Impact 89 FM. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.